Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance a hau. Later on, we're discovering the chemical element rubidium. But first up, our emotions are one of the things that define us as human. From an early age, we learn to read other people's emotional states from their faces, from their body language, and from what they're saying. But does this ability keep improving as we mature? And do we even retain this ability our whole lives? Sonia Sly is off to the University of Otago to find out more. As human beings, our ability to read emotions has underpinned our survival, at least somewhat. But what if we lost that ability to recognise them? I look at development and we study everything from children and parenting through to old age. Hi, I'm Sonia Sly, and in this episode of Our Changing World, I find out what happens to our brains as we age and why it becomes more difficult to recognise emotions. And we mainly look at social understanding, uh, which is sometimes called theory of mind. And this is Ted Ruffman. He's a professor of psychology at Otago University and his research over the past 15 to 20 years has looked at how social understanding changes as we age. So we look at uh, recognition of emotion in faces and bodily expressions and vocal expressions. We also sometimes look at matching of faces to, say, vocal sounds or matching of bodies to vocal sounds. And basically, over all those kinds of stimuli, what we find is emotion recognition decreases as we age. And in particular, there are certain emotions which are more difficult for older adults when we compare them to young adults. Facial expressions of anger and sadness and fear are particularly difficult for older adults. He's compared samples of young adults with older adults who are 60 years and over. So what are some of the changes that take place? You can start to see declines in emotion recognition in middle-aged individuals. (laughs) That's shocking. Yeah. There are certain emotions which are more difficult for older adults when we compare them to young adults. Facial expressions of anger and sadness and fear are particularly difficult for older adults. Why do you think that is? We've looked at the potential lifestyle correlates of... um, emotion recognition in older adults and we found that having a healthy diet might be related to social understanding. We did a study where we gave our participants either a placebo, which was like a sugar pill, or we gave them something called oxytocin. 
oxytocin is a neural peptide, and these are small protein-like molecules used by neurons to communicate with each other and influence brain activity and the body. Facilitates neurotransmission. And so what people do, they can squirt this up their nose and over a period of five minutes it enters the brain over about 45 minutes and then we can look at their emotion recognition. And what we found for older men is that their emotion recognition improves after they've had oxytocin compared to placebo. How much do they need of this oxytocin? They had 10 squirts in total, so it's a tiny amount that they're actually getting. One squirt up each nostril for five minutes. So the effect would probably only last for a couple of hours. It didn't help older women. Well, it just means that we are so different then, physiologically. Yeah, throughout the lifespan, including children and through to old age, women are better at recognising emotions than men. If you look at emotion recognition in old age, it's certainly older men who have more difficulty. Would that suggest that men have difficulty reading emotion in general? It really isn't clear why females are better than males at recognising emotions. So one possibility is something to do with biology and the way the brain is changed. In particular, what happens in the first three months of the time you're in your mother's womb is that boys begin producing testosterone. That circulates in the womb and it changes the way the brain develops. And it could be that it's something about biology then, which is leading uh, females to be better at recognizing emotions. But an alternative is simply that parents are socializing girls and boys differently. And that is certainly known to be the case that parents will talk more about emotions with girls than they will with boys. For some reason, I can't imagine what that would be like to not be able to recognise emotion. If we were to split young adults into quartiles, meaning the bottom 25%, the top 25%, and two 25% in the middle, what we find is that about almost three-quarters of our older adults are functioning like the lowest quartile of young adults. They're not way off the scale, generally speaking, but they're just subtly worse in older adults. That worse emotion recognition is related to other aspects of social behavior. So, for instance, it's related to older men being more verbose, Okay, so that means they talk for longer, they go off-topic, and when they go off-topic, they go more extremely off-topic. You mean kind of like these guys? Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau. Believe me, this man is a menace. He's always drinking, starting fights. Isn't that right? They're both grumpy old men. For older women, their emotion recognition isn't related to verbosity. We also found for both older men and women that worse emotion recognition is associated with worse detection of lies, which of course has implications for their vulnerability to fraud schemes. And we found that worse emotion recognition in older adults is related to worse detection of faux pas or social gaffes. And finally, we found that worse emotion recognition is related to more extreme right-wing social attitudes, such as a woman's places in the home. Emotion recognition seems to be related to quite a few other social insights or behaviours. 
And there are a number of factors that help us to maintain a healthy brain. Lifestyle is certainly related to the rate of brain aging. You find individual differences in how the brain ages. So if you have many social contacts, if you uh, have cognitive stimulation, diet also makes a difference. So in particular, we looked at the Mediterranean diet, which is rich in kind of nuts and olive oil and fish and fruit and vegetables. That was related to a better social understanding in older adults. Having a healthy diet is known to promote brain health. So poverty is going to play a role in your yeah, ability yeah. to have a healthy brain? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the changes in New Zealand society, but also throughout the world, is this kind of extremes of wealth versus extremes of poverty. And some of the better foods are going to cost, and so it will be harder for somebody who is impoverished to afford those foods. But also, I think it's just also all about knowledge. When you look at people who are in the lower socioeconomic groups, the knowledge about good foods just would not be as good as the knowledge sometimes in more educated groups or higher SES groups. And you know how people say that going for a walk or a run helps to clear your mind? Well, it's better for you than you think. So as far as exercise goes, the studies that I'm familiar with have looked at interventions over a six-month period, and they've compared them to exercise, which is non-aerobic, such as stretching. And certainly the aerobic intervention has uh, an effect over six months. Really across the lifespan, um, exercise is extremely important for brain health. And it doesn't even matter how old you are. Take it away, Richard Simmons. It's been shown that if you take 70-year-olds and you put them on an aerobic exercise program for six months, you can reverse brain decline. So you get increases in both white and gray matter in the temporal areas or on the side of the brain. You get increases in brain volume in those areas. So to a large extent, you can control the rate of decline. So I think at any age, it's going to be good for you. So you can see it in kids. You can see it in middle age. You can see that doing exercise in middle age will help you to avoid dementia when you're older. You know, the wisest thing, I suppose, would be to do aerobic exercise throughout your lifespan. But it's never too late to start. I think that's a cue to slip on those running shoes, jump on that bike, or throw on your cowboy boots. And touch. We'll walk back for three. And touch. Step forward and back and forward and scuff. And we'll break it down. Break it down. Break it down. That's more like it. Okay, but for those of you who may be a little less inclined to get physical, there is another alternative. We're doing a study at the moment as well, looking at whether a, an intervention which involves training uh, in music, learning to play the guitar, could potentially uh, reverse some of the declines that one sees in old age. The reason we're looking at this is because there's a great deal of cognitive effort required to learn something new. And there are studies showing that learning 
say, new dance steps can uh, facilitate brain health in old age. So we're trying this particular intervention to see whether that affects general cognition and also emotion recognition. But going back to the acceleration of brain decline in older men, I wonder what role this might play in cases of sexual harassment. I remember um, coming across the case of an American television presenter who had been essentially harassing female colleagues, younger female colleagues, including wandering around naked. And he genuinely thought that they shared the same interests and so that the feeling was mutual. I would suspect in those kinds of situations that brain aging could contribute towards difficulty in reading signals. I have no proof that in that particular instance, but I think in general that will occur. So do you think then later on in the years to come that you could see a case taken to court and for that man to go, actually it's because of my decline in brain functioning that I literally did not see the signs? I I could imagine a lawyer might try that defence. I don't know how successful that would be. (laughs) Certainly an argument can be made. I guess what happens then is it's all about intention. If a man has no intention to be inappropriate, yet his actions are perceived as inappropriate, the question is, you know, in the eyes of the law, is he culpable? I don't know what the law says, but I can imagine a lawyer making that argument. Well, that's some food for thought. But the overarching problem is that by the time this is happening to us and we struggle to read other people's emotions, we won't even realise it's happening. That's right. You might feel that you're really on top of things. We all have blind spots. When we're at the peak of our powers in our younger years, we lack kind of experience, and um, the experience helps. But at the same time, um, as we get older and we have that experience, our brain health declines. We don't necessarily know when we are failing to pick up signals. So that's really problematic, because how do you then catch yourself? Yeah, it may be impossible to catch yourself, but I think being aware of the possibility of this occurring should help us to look for these kinds of indications. So if we're in a social situation, we should look to see, are there any signals there which indicate we might have said something we shouldn't have said, or we might have failed to pick up on signals in other people. And and that brain decline, does it manifest itself physically? Like, if it's somebody who has a very youthful, healthy brain, will they also, in appearance, look younger? Yeah, there is some evidence indicating that. I, again, would feel I need to look at that literature more carefully, but I have come across some of that literature, yeah. Thanks, Ted. Ted Rothman is a professor of psychology at the University of Otago, and that story was produced by Sonia Sly. Koto tato au horihori tenei. He hōtaka e pānaki te pūtaio, te taio, me te kaupapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, let's head on over to the Elemental Podcast, where Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology is shining a light on the obscure, as well as the famous corners of the periodic table. To celebrate 150 years since the table was first published, we are visiting every element alphabetically, and we are still in the R's. In our always colourful exploration of the periodic table, we are up to episode 70, Rubidium. 
Anything to do with rubies? I'm thinking rubies are red. Mm, sorry to disappoint. Uh. Not quite. No, there's no rubidium in rubies. That's not how they got their name. They are aluminium oxide with a little bit of chromium in there. And uh, if we go back to the chromium episode, you can listen all about that. I should have remembered that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> So um, rubies, in fact, get their name from the Latin ruber, meaning red, but rubidium is aptly named from the Latin rubidius, meaning deepest red. But in its own way, it is kind of precious. Despite being fairly abundant, it is rather pricey. So it sells for around about 23000 New Zealand dollars per kilo at the moment. Oh, don't think I'll be popping out to buy any any time soon then. <laughs> uh, vital stats, please. Okay, so elemental symbol RB, atomic number 37, which puts it on the left-hand side of the periodic table down towards the bottom of group one. And it was discovered in 1861. And it holds a place, I guess, in the discovery of the elements because it was the second element that was discovered by spectroscopy, uh, the first of which was cesium. And if you missed that, you can find our episode about cesium in our back catalogue. So, discovered by Robert Bunsen. Ooh, I've heard of him. He's the man of Bunsen burner fame. Indeed he is. Ah, and yes. <laughs> And Gustav Kirchhoff. Ringing any bells? Uh, sadly, no. <laughs> Look, I do usually only manage one chemical fact per episode if I'm lucky. So, no, tell me about Kirchhoff. Yeah, well, he I wouldn't call him chemistry, really. It's more physics, but he is the Kirchhoff of Kirchhoff's Laws fame. Which is what, exactly? Which is, if you remember back to your high school physics and remember those circuit diagrams and stuff, and this is all to do with current and voltage in electric circuits, which we're not going to go into because that's physics. Anyway, so Bunsen and Kirchhoff, they used the newly invented spectroscope to look at the atomic spectra of elements. And so what does that all mean? What they did was to heat the material, or a material, and in this case what they were using was a mineral called lipidolite. So they heat that in a flame, and then they look at the colours imparted to the flame by the elements in this particular mineral using the spectroscope. So we need a little bit of explanation as to exactly what's going on here. So here's some first-year chemistry for you all. So if you put any element, or in fact any particular chemical substance, uh, into a flame, the atoms are absorbing energy. And what they do when they absorb energy is that they promote electrons uh, from low-energy states in the atom to high-energy states in the atom. And then once they've got to these high-energy states, then they don't really like being there, and they want to get back down to the lowest-energy state in any way that they can. So there's a number of ways that the substance can actually do this, and one of these is by emitting that excess energy as visible light. Uh, and not only visible light, but a whole lot of, I guess, invisible light, like ultraviolet and infrared and stuff that we can't see. The wavelengths of light that are emitted by any particular element are absolutely peculiar to that element, okay? And so therefore, they can be used to unambiguously identify any element. Every element has got its own unique atomic emission spectrum, is what we call these things. So Bunsen and Kirchhoff were busy using the spectroscope, analysing colours in the flame, and they found a couple of beautiful deep red lines that they couldn't ascribe to any known element, and so that's how rubidium gets its name. 
Ah, and since Bunsen and Kirchhoff also found cesium, which by thinking very deeply I seem to remember had blue spectral lines, mm-hmm. um, they found it from the same mineral. Yep. I assume this means these two elements share some features in common? They do indeed. They're both group 1 metals and rubidium sits above cesium uh, in group 1. And so being a group 1 metal, that makes it soft, it makes it low melting and it makes it very reactive with water. So down that left-hand column on the periodic table, we've got potassium, which mm-hmm. is also explosive in water, isn't it? Ooh, yes, yes. So if you missed <laughs> the potassium, you can go and listen to the earlier episode in the Elemental <laughs> about it. And sodium, which yep. is coming up soon. Absolutely, yes. So rubidium, is it useful or no? Well, given its price, which is surprisingly high, no, there's not really many uses for it. So it can be used in atomic clocks, which are very, very accurate beasties, but its group one underling cesium directly below it is in fact better, but in fact that's more expensive as well. But uh, the cheaper rubidium clocks still do a pretty darn good job. They're amazingly precise and they do in fact get used in uh, global positioning systems. So what else about rubidium? We've got the rubidium-82 isotope, and that can be used in positron emission tomography, or PET scans, uh, which may be familiar to some listeners. And we mentioned PET scans briefly in the lutetium episode, if you go back and listen to that. <laughs> Is that it? Well, almost, but not quite. And in fact, rubidium's claim to fame, the one that really put it on the map chemically, I guess, is that it won Eric Cornell and Carl Wieman the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2001. And they got this because they were the first to make a Bose-Einstein condensate using the rubidium-87 isotope. So I know this is a bit more physics than chemistry, but what exactly is a Bose-Einstein condensate, please? Oh, I don't know. I'd, I'd say it's chemistry. You know, if it's interesting, it's chemistry. If it's not, it's physics. <laughs> um, so we go all the way back to 1924. A famous Indian physicist, uh, his name's Satyendra Bose, and he was doing some calculations on photons. And uh, photons, hopefully, as many of you know, are particles of light. He was interested in these, and he'd done some calculations, and he sent his work to Einstein, and he extended the work of Bose to particles that are now called bosons, in fact, after Bose. So what he showed was that at very, very low temperature, bosons, of which the rubidium-87 isotope is one, should in fact spontaneously assemble into a new state of matter. What are bosons? (laughs) Difficult to explain. So they are atoms that have got integer spin. Okay, so that means that their spins are 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, etc., etc., as opposed to fermions, which have half integer spin. And the big thing about bosons is that bosons can occupy the same quantum space, unlike electrons. For example, electrons are fermions, And again, those of you who've done any first-year chemistry, you will know that you cannot stick two electrons into the same orbital with the same spin. So there's a little chemistry lesson for you all. Anyway, so the guts of this was that this was a prediction made way back in the 20s by Bose and Einstein, and it took until 1995, in fact, for this to be confirmed experimentally 
when that particular Bose-Einstein condensate was prepared. So what use are these things? Well, you know, they are a new state of matter. They only exist at extremely, extremely low temperatures. And they're pretty much, at the moment, only of academic interest, but they may have some uses in quantum computers. And if you want to learn more about quantum computers, go back and have a listen to the Niobium episode. (laughs) It's great that we've got such an excellent back catalogue of elements to refer to now, isn't it? (laughs) It's like being a cooking show. And here's one we prepared earlier. (laughs) And I also take from that that calling someone a boson is not as much of an insult (laughs) as I thought it might be. Thanks, Alan. And Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology introduces us to chemistry and sometimes a bit of physics in the Elemental podcast. And you can find all of the episodes of Elemental and all our other stories on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Or listen to us as a podcast on your favourite podcast app. Keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.